So hi guys and welcome back again or welcome if it's the first time you've uh, watched it on YouTube or heard it on the various uh, podcasting platforms. Uh, it's Too Many Cooks with me, Charles Burns. And today we have Daniel Larn um, as our wonderful guest. Um, and I guess a really good place to begin, I read a bit of your biography as I do with, with most guests that come on. Um, and it's actually quite similar to mine in some respects, albeit we're from different worlds, right? You're, you'd be more in the rural sort of world. I'm, I'm certainly more in the urban kind of centers, but uh, you also had kind of young entrepreneurial uh, flair from a young age. And one of the things I've, I read about is that you also sold sweets at school. That was something that yeah. I did, right? So I, I, I asked this when I was being interviewed on another podcast today, but I think it has some, some mileage that, some of these really early experiences that you have, you don't realize at the time why you're doing it. Maybe you did have a motivation to make money, maybe you didn't, I don't know. But I think when you look back, some of those things actually help and sowing the seed is probably the right use of phrase for someone like yourself, even what we're gonna talk about, of <laughs> what eventually turned into a business. Do, do you think, do you look back now and think, oh, I see now certain things I learned from a young age or not necessarily? Um. Yes, yes and no. I mean, when when we started doing that, it kind of almost it came about by accident, which I think is something that's quite similar to when a lot of people in later life start businesses and things. They kind of have a moment of realization and say, "Do you know what? This is a really good idea," or "Do you know what? I can go and do that." That was that was kind of how it came about. You know, we just so happened that there was this there was this shop around the corner from school that was um was kind of selling these they were they were a particularly sour like absolutely awful they just used to ruin your face you know make you cry um and we thought it was kind of funny so we started buying them and then we were giving them out to some of our friends at school and then kind of watching them struggle with it um and then we found that people were wanting these things so then that was when we started saying well okay well we'll go we'll buy them and then we can start to sell them so that was that was how it came about you know there was just this this one thing that seemed to kind of get a little bit of traction and and we sort of started from there yeah so and then again something else that's got some familiarity in my story you went to university in plymouth i didn't go i went to birmingham and then you stay for two years and quit. I stayed for probably two weeks and quit. But still, uh, <laughs> still, still the uh, college dropout kids. Um, you studied merchant shipping, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I have an idea what that is, but I'm interested to know what that's about and what the study of it is. Yeah. So, essentially, merchant shipping is a, a full sort of honours degree course that you can do with the view to going into sort of the merchant navy so you kind of go through it's an accredited program it's accredited by the uh the mca which is sort of the essentially the dvla for the marine industry in the uk um and you kind of go through you get all of your professional certification as well as the academic qualification of the degree um it's kind of a, a course which I would recommend if you're kind of a vocationally focused kind of person, you know, maybe if you're not terribly academic, but you know, you want to go out and do something and maybe you know that you'd like to try and get to university, 
I would really recommend looking at that as a, as a course to do because one of the advantages of that is I actually got sponsored to go to university oh, wow. um, and I got to sort of go and, and, and travel and, and go and all, do all sorts of wonderful things because of this. That was largely why I did it. It was more for the experience of going to university, mm -hmm. um, doing something that was quite interesting rather than sort of just being a purely sort of academic thing. And then, and then the other thing, again, it's really interesting to me, you then, uh, you quit university and then I'm chronologically, I imagine, then you became a surveyor in the oil and gas industry, which again, something that people, I know what the oil and gas industry is roughly, you know, I, I, yeah. I think of like the North Sea oil rigs and that's what I think of it. Um, but I, I just need to know what the nuts and bolts of that job are like. And you, you mentioned traveling and that sounds super interesting. So um, you're quite right. I was sort of going through university and one of the guys I was at university with, he was a, a mature student um, and he was doing uh, quite a lot of work in, in this particular field. You know, he was, uh, he was working as a surveyor out there whenever the university wasn't on. Um, and he sort of just sort of said, you know what, look, you could do this, right? At the time, the oil price was, you know, sky high and the market was booming. There was so much work going on that they, they couldn't find enough people to, to fill the positions that they needed. And he said, look, if you want to get into this as a, as a career, like now's the time to do it. You, they'll take you on because you've got kind of transferable skills. You know, you kind of know what you're talking about. And once you're in, if you get in and you get experience, and once you've got experience, then that's it. You know, all the other questions go out the window. You know, nobody's going to quiz you about anything. Once you've got experience, that's, that's what you need. So we, I started there, and the work that we were doing was um, sort of seismic survey. So that is um, a vessel which kind of moves around the, the oil field, and they have these compressed air. Uh, guns we call them but they don't sort of fire anything they just make a bang in the water and then we listen to the um, the reflections that come off of all of the different subsurface layers and we kind of map the the oil fields and things like that so yeah I, I, I did that for a long time I traveled traveled quite a bit a lot of sort of Europe mostly obviously coastal areas and I got to do some of um, Eastern Europe we did a, a fantastic trip uh, we did Christmas in Romania, out, in the, the sort of, out there. We had a, a really interesting kind of crew change in Constanta and all, so, all sorts of wonderful experiences. It was a, a great time to, um, to kind of go out and enjoy stuff. You know, it, it, really, it really allowed you to kind of enjoy things because it paid well and you had a lot of time off. So you could really make the most of all the opportunities that you were given to travel in that time. It's interesting as well because, you know, there's another parallel with my story, which is that you had a, correct if I'm wrong, obviously, a family farm, which I imagine was a, a business, yeah. right? Um, and then you went back to that following some time in the surveying of the oil and gas industry. Um, I'm wondering, yeah. similarly to me, just kind of, you know, draw parallels. Was this family farm something that you always thought you were going to go into? Was it something that as with my family business, at dinner tables, it would always be discussed. And it was always part of the kind of the DNA of every conversation. Was it similar or was it not like that? Um, 
Yes, again, kind of yes and no. So one of the reasons why I went to, to do merchant shipping at university was because from a very young age, I was kind of adamant that I didn't want to be a farmer. Um, we only actually kind of moved to the farm full time when I was about 10 or 11. I mean, I obviously spent most of my time there growing up, but we moved to the farm full time when I was about 10 or 11. Oh, so beforehand, um, you, were working, you were living somewhere remotely and then working out? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Like, what it what it was is it's my my grandfather's farm really oh wow um and we we kind of weren't farmers like my mum my dad uh my mum my was a teacher my dad worked in a fire brigade in london but the family farm was in durham in the northeast of england um so you know we we weren't your kind of your typical farmer you know we we weren't we weren't part of that kind of group of people. We didn't really have any farming friends. You know, we were we were as far removed from that as possible growing up. And I sort of saw a lot of the, I got to experience a lot of the good things that came from farming. You know, there's an awful lot of freedom and it's a very rewarding job. But I also got to see from outside just how difficult it can be at times you know it, it it's it can be a very tough and and difficult way of life and i saw how it kind of consumed almost like what you're saying you know it, it kind of consumes everything in in your life when you're you're there and i didn't want that but once i'd gone away and i was away from that for some time i started to miss out on a lot of those things that I thought were really nice about the job, you know. Um, and so when everything started to to go downhill in the oil and gas market and job security became very, um, very much a concern, uh, I started making kind of backup plans. And because obviously I'd, you know, left, left university, I didn't have a degree, I only had my A-levels to fall back on. By that point, I had, you know, a house with a mortgage and, um, and, and kids. So I kind of couldn't just go back and, and, and start again. I had to kind of, I had to try and move sideways somehow. And the only other thing that I could really talk about with any authority was, was farming. Um, and so I started, I started trying to kind of give myself something of an education there um, myself, you know, spending a lot of time reading and studying and, and learning from people, talking to people. Um, and yeah, eventually I, I kind of stumbled upon an idea, uh, took it to some people in the industry and they sort of said, you know what, this is a, this is something quite interesting and, and we think you should pursue it. And it just kind of grew from there, really. I'm interested to know as well, because another bizarre parallel is that my family business as well came from my grandfather, right? Um, and is there a, a stark difference between the farm that your grandfather set up and what you were farming versus what your dad then took it to be and then where you take it now? Are they three very different things? Uh, well, in, in, in some ways, really, you know, what we're doing is, is kind of 
what I've gone on to do is kind of completely separate from the family farm. I'm still helping kind of develop the family farm and things. And that's, that's really only now, I mean, nearly, nearly 20 years later after we first moved there, that's only now starting to actually kind of leave my grandfather's grasp uh, and, and come over to us. And it's, it's skipping a generation. So my sister's actually taking it on. Okay. Um, and, and she wants to go and become the farmer. And yes, the way that they're doing things is so, so radically different to, to what was there before. Um, because I think that that's what, that's what has to happen. I think if you, it's good to to offer that kind of clean boundary i think um you know yourself family business can be much more complex in a way than ordinary <laughs> business i hope my grandfather and father listens to this because it's so true <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 much more complex i mean in some ways it's in some ways it's far more risky because there's there's more than just money on the line you know it's it's relationships and not even just relationships with co-workers they're relationships from birth you know it's it's your family it's your siblings it's your parents it's your grandparents um but one of the the things that we talked about was for so long we were kind of in transition but it never happened. And we got this idea and we drew up these plans and we said, look, this is it now. We're going to make a radical transition in a very short period of time. And that's going to, it's going to end that chapter and start a new one. And because it is so radically different, you kind of lose, everybody loses that ability to kind of compare one way to another because it is different. You can't say, oh, I wouldn't have done it like that, or I wouldn't have done it like this. It happens in our business. <laughs> yeah, you know, having, having that, that nice, crisp, you know, line in the sand, yeah. where it's like, that's it. That's the end of that chapter, you know. This is what's happening now. This is what it's gonna look like. This is where we make a start, and from this date forward, we take it on. So yeah, that's, that's happening back home now um and it's it's going really really well so far um oddly enough again we, we're starting a, a a collection of of videos and things that we're putting out to kind of document that whole process Brilliant. um because i think that that's quite a quite an important part of, of business these days is is the content that you create around it i think anybody who isn't creating some form of content for their business is is missing a trick and i can yeah. say that as the world's biggest hypocrite because i i don't do enough i don't do enough. you know pe people are just super interested particularly when it comes to like farming or, or any business now as to who's behind it what's their intentions and if and, and particularly with the world we're into now um people are starting to become a little bit um frustrated with businesses and business owners that are just self-serving and all they're in it for is just kind of make a profit. I think people want to see now, particularly with the globalization, globalized world we live in, um, I can buy, in, in my instance, a diamond ring from anywhere in the world. In your instance, if I'm a supermarket, I can look across the world for, for supplies of what it might be. So yeah. I think it's super important to be able to 
have a brand and, and not a brand necessarily just like this is our name or logo etc but actually like you know who are the people behind it like some people aren't that interested in that but i think it's getting more and more and more so probably in the food space now which we'll come on to absolutely where people are really fascinated and, and, and almost um they become experts themselves in i want to know what's going in my body what every ingredient is where they've come from i want to be able to track it and all these different things um but I'm interested though, in terms of your grandfather's farm, what was he actually farming? What particular, like, you know, vegetables, was it cattle? Like, what, what was actually farming? So for, for a long time, it was a sort of dairy farm. Uh, we were one of the first farms in the area to go to organic. Okay. Um, we kind of pioneered that quite early on. You know, we championed organic quite early on. Um, and then after... After foot and mouth disease in the sort of late 90s there, things started to change a little bit. You know, we we weren't directly affected, but it caused all sorts of all sorts of issues. And then we transitioned to beef shortly after I uh, I moved there full time. So, you know, around 2000, uh, so for 20, nearly 20 years, we've been a, a beef farm. So we do our own now uh, grass fed, 100 percent organic. Uh, Aberdeen Angus uh, and it's it's going really well going really well brilliant and then so you've gone so so what's the kind of the new techniques that you're you're employing and I think that also comes nicely into this uh, company that you've got called um, Willard is it Willard Willard, Willard. Willard group yeah, uh, no, it's okay. sorry um, and yeah so how, how do those things link together and, and what's it all about okay so it it started off one of the big challenges for, for people who want to get into agriculture at the moment is exactly that it's how to get into it mm -hmm. uh, famously you have to be born into it or marry into it those, those are really the two ways that people typically get into farming and for me like i say i kind of had this job and i was looking to go back to doing something else and I said, right, farming's great, but I want to try and do away with all the things that I used to not like about farming. What sort of things are they? It's it's things like the, and again, I should say that this isn't necessarily all farms. You know, not all farms are uh, the same, but it was things like the constant lack of like working capital if something went wrong on the farm it meant upheaval of, of a major sort of way to try and get things sorted out there was always um I, I i don't know it was really complicated we didn't have the right tools and equipment which meant that any job that you had to do became one much more complex two much more time consuming and actually much more costly okay third was the fact that the way that the farm was ran it meant that it needed more people than it could support there all hours of the day you know 24 7 there had to be three people there to be able to do all the different things but in reality it could only really provide a few hours work for all three of those people from an economic standpoint yeah it, it just it just didn't make sense you know if everybody was taking a proper salary out of it for the work that they were doing mm -hmm. 
it, it would it would just have collapsed you right. know it was only because farmers don't really do that they kind of just just do it for the, for the love of it a lot of the times yeah. even though a lot of them won't admit that 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 tends to be the case yeah. and I said you know that's that's just not me you know I, I didn't want to do that I, I still wanted to be able to um to you know get away and, and do a holiday or you know to not have to worry if um you know if we wanted to go and, and do a day trip somewhere and go out and do something with family or whatever we we could so i started looking for a way to start my own farm um and run it much more like a business you know uh, I, I say to a lot of people now that the best farmers out there are ex-accountants those those guys really know how to farm um the the idea for me was to create something that took as little capital to start as possible and would give me that flexibility. So I started looking at um, these kind of more intensive sort of beef finishing systems. That's what I was I was looking at. Um, but it didn't didn't quite sit right with me as much as uh, as much as I'm quite informed about the merits of intensive animal agriculture it's not all as bad as it's made out to be genuinely i still didn't quite like the idea of it i do still like the very kind of picturesque image of it and you know so so, so you're referring to like intensive being like more like a factory in the production line versus yeah i, I don't raising I, around and stuff yeah I, I don't like to call it factory farming because that's that kind of has this real negative connotations. Yeah, it, it it just instantly makes everybody a little bit nervous, you know. I was just using that analogy to kind of to compare the two, but yeah, I'm no, I, I I know. Don't don't <laughs> worry about it. So I, I don't like to use that term, and we were very careful. One of the phrases that everybody on the in the actual industry throws around is they talk about sustainable intensification. Mm -hmm. They say, well, look, you know, it's better for the environment. It's better for um, the animals. It's better for the the quality of food and the amount of food that they produce. It's better for the consumers as well. And I said, yeah, but when you say sustainable intensification, it's, yeah, it's nice. But that animal element, you know, the that's kind of being removed from 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 these kind of systems and that's what everybody sees when they look at the kind of the intensive farming the images of intensive farming and things everybody says well you know oh, it's heartbreaking mm. which in in many cases it is actually I, I won't deny um so we we set about trying to create something we called sensitive intensification mm -hmm. which was very much more about trying to trying to get to where we're meeting those goals of sustainable intensification but making as many concessions as we can to make the actual environment in in these places be something much better than the traditional uh, intensive farming systems so the animal kind of welfare and stuff is is more of a priority than it was previously 
that's that's it and and again it's not even animal welfare because animal welfare in terms of the physical well-being of animals actually those intensive units have a much higher standard of welfare than most other farms um, from a purely objective viewpoint um, but it's it's kind of in in truth it's really difficult for us to kind of put a finger on exactly what it is one of the ways that we describe it is we say well we can't it can't look like a farm and it can't smell like a farm because when you go to these intensive units you know we went out to look at some uh, equipment some feed equipment on a farm in holland and you know there's so much ammonia in the air in these buildings you know it makes your throat sore it makes your eyes water um the room is so kind of dark and, and dusty it's it's not it's not a nice environment at all you know you wouldn't want to be in there yeah um and that you know really made us sort of second guess what we were doing and we said but we've got to make it different we've got to show that you can have all the benefits of a system like this but have loads of natural light have no ammonia have the best possible environment have plants in there have something approaching the way that we sold it to people in the early days was we said we wanted to build the eden project for cows okay that that was what we set out to do we wanted to create an artificial environment in a bubble that we could put animals in so they had something approaching that outdoor life but with all the benefits of it being indoor and so that was what we we set out to build and, and yep. that's what we what we've done that makes that makes a lot of sense and where does um artificial intelligence come into to play here and and how do you use that and what are the benefits that you're seeing so for us artificial intelligence comes into it in at sort of two levels um we have a sort of farm level system which is continually optimizing the, the processes for the the farm unit um so that is looking at monitoring the performance of the animal it's looking at monitoring the quality of feed the amount of water the amount of activity you know how much they move around um all sorts of things sorry my daughter's <laughs> yeah so we're we're putting into these buildings all kinds of different sensors and, and various technologies that are monitoring every single aspect that we can um we spent a long time going out and meeting with all of these usually much smaller technology companies that are manufacturing new and different sensors yeah we're collating all of this information and in a true kind of big data machine learning kind of way everything is being put into a database and the system is constantly trying to optimize all those processes for each individual animal so if one particular animal say goes in and let's look at the dairy system dairy systems are quite good because we're getting multiple measures of productivity per day every time the animal comes in and gets milked we're sort of seeing what's happening right um 
the animal goes in, she gets milked. We see how much milk that animal has produced. We see how much uh, fat and protein is in the milk, how much sugar, all those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, we can then look at that and say, okay, that animal is producing milk at that much. We know how much energy it takes for that animal at that Sweet. weight to produce that amount of milk. Therefore, we are overfeeding that animal by X amount. Therefore, ah, we right. can reduce the amount of feed that we need to give that animal, um, or vice versa. You know, that animal's producing that much milk. If we feed her X amount, she can produce X amount more. Um, and it's constantly trying to balance the cost of inputs versus the the value of the outputs. Yeah um that's kind of how it works on a farm level but then we step up to the next level which is looking at the the supply chain so now the customer for this might be somebody like in the dairy instance it might be a, an arla or a muller yep. you know a, a, a big commercial dairy that's that has hundreds of thousands of farms um they can now see into their supply chain and they can see what farms are doing how farms are managing everything if you look at much more integrated schemes like you might get in pigs or poultry mm -hmm. um, some of those systems they're actually you know bulk buying hundreds of thousands of tons of feeds and grains and things like that so whereas on a that system that's running on a farm level it kind of going into that minutiae it, it makes that farm run more efficiently and that's yep. great but when you take those small gains at that level out to that supply chain level um then that starts to add up to sort of significant sums of money yeah um we are looking at expanding the system to start to even do various sort of predictive um predictive analysis so we can sort of say okay because there is a, a drought in this particular region that's going to affect the price of some of the inputs by x amount in so many months time therefore your cost of production is going to be x in so many months time you need to buy x amount of grain now in order to oh, offset right. that you know we're we're trying to look at that we're, we're applying an awful lot of um industrial economics that's a lot of it is taken from heavy industry, things like the steel industry. Um, we're, we're borrowing a lot of their, um, their kind of economic tools mm -hmm. uh, and, and applying them in this, this new kind of industry, which is kind of the theme for what we've done. Uh, everything that we're doing, we're sort of taking from, from various other industries and, and packaging it together into something new. On the technology front as well, I don't know if this is something you're looking into or have plans in place for, but something that I am quite interested in is blockchain. And for people that don't know, blockchain is not just Bitcoin, Ethereum, and all these different currencies. It's actually like a large database or ledger whereby you can track things. That's the best way I can describe it, I suppose. Um, so I'm just wondering, because I know I've seen IBM have worked with a, a company to track, this was a year or two ago, um, they tracked a, a like a ton of oranges, a sort of certain you know certain amount of oranges, and they could show exactly where it had been, how long it had been there, and show the exact supply chain, and that could have and will have 
I know Denona into this as well, far reaching implications as to once you can figure out how to utilize that. So have you kind of looked into it and what kind of, what have you found so far? Yeah, so it's, it's a, a hot topic. Uh, it really is. You know, it's one of those things that always comes up at the, the kind of industry events and things. You know, we sit on a few, um, a few kind of innovation panels and things, and it's something that's always being talked about. One of the problems that's, one of the things that's kind of preventing it from getting into the industry uh, at the moment is the fact that nobody's really sure how they can um, how they can apply it you know how it's going to actually get in there and and start making a difference sorry everybody everybody sees the value of what blockchain can bring to the supply chain the issue is how they can actually implement it everything kind of works from farm level to say the boning hall in you know a meat plant everything works but once you start to break these huge blocks of you know a, a ton of grain or uh, a, a, an animal carcass or something down into its constituent parts it literally falls apart. How do you track everything through that system yeah. in a way which doesn't limit the productivity of that process? We could do it if we slowed the whole process down and really tracked everything going through that, but we can't do that. You know, that's a very, very costly step. Yeah. So what everybody is trying to do now is they're looking at how they can manage that transition before it goes from you know the the bulk element down to the the kind of packaged goods the final the final thing that goes off to the supermarket that transition for many products is quite a challenge you know it's it's not the same for for everything you mentioned oranges before fruits and things probably can be done whether they could be done at scale yet you know commercially i don't know but that's that's the big stumbling block in the industry at the moment, I think. Interesting. And then I guess a nice way to move on, you talk about part of the, the, what you're doing with, you, with your company is improving food security and also helping emerging, emerging economies. Um, how are you doing those two things? So we're doing a lot of work on projects out in Africa at the moment. We're getting some things going out there, which is... It's a really challenging environment for, for animal agriculture. And, you know, their, their productivity is incredibly low. For example, Nigeria, uh, the average dairy cow in Nigeria produces one litre of milk per day. Um, an average, an average animal in the UK is going to produce 35 litres. You know, some, of the, some of the more productive animals will produce 40 or more litres per day. You know, it's wow. an average for about 35 litres per day in the UK. That would be a second, sir. So there's, there's a major difference in terms of productivity, and that comes about from a number of different factors. Predominantly, there's a, a real environmental burden. So, again, looking at, looking at dairy animals, um, once once the temperature gets above say 
says 16 degrees C here in the UK, yeah. the productivity of, of the dairy herd in the UK begins to drop quite significantly okay. because it's too hot. You know, the animals can't handle that much heat. Um, the tropical kind of breeds, you know, the, the native breeds of places like Africa and India and Asia, they do cope with the heat a little bit better. Um, but the kind of the optimal range for, for, for ruminant or certainly uh, bovine animals for cattle is between sort of minus 10 and about plus 8 degrees. So okay. within that range, they're very, very happy, very, very productive. But it doesn't often get that cold in Africa. You know, yeah. they tend to have those much higher temperatures year round and much higher humidity as well which means that the animal has to put an awful lot of energy into regulating its own body temperature, which it mm -hmm. can't then put towards producing milk. I see, I see. So that's one of the things that we're, we're doing. We're providing these, like I said to you before, these, these bubbles that have this kind of controlled environment inside so that we can give the animals in there the best possible chance of achieving uh, their full, what we, we term the genetic potential, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the sort of the maximum theoretical productivity of, of the animal. Um, you then start to, once we have that in place, uh, again, our AI system and, and all these other things that we're doing can look to further improve productivity by changing the nutrition. We can modify the nutrition and things like that to try and improve productivity. We can even start to look at the, the genetics of the animal. Um, so we can look at not necessarily replacing the native breeds with exotic breeds, like you know breeds from Europe. Mm -hmm. um, we can actually look at selectively breeding the animals that are within the country already to gradually improve the genetic merit of the, the herd. So that's, that's kind of a huge part of what, what Will and Group are doing there. Um, we've got a few projects on, on the go across Africa, in Nigeria, Rwanda, um, Ghana, and, and a few others. So yeah, we're, we're hoping that in the next couple of years, we'll really start to be able to to make a difference out there because it, it's it's really important out there you know animals are as much as we as much as a significant portion of population might want us to kind of do away with sort of animal agriculture um unfortunately it, it's just not really possible i mean we're actually starting to struggle in parts of the uk now because there isn't enough animal agriculture uh, Cambridge is and, and sort of that part of, of the country there, they have a distinct lack of organic matter in the soil right. and they can't get enough of it. They're, they're now having to import uh, slurries and, and manures and things from all over the country to try and rejuvenate the soils because it's traditionally been a very uh, arable part of the country now for, for so long. Um, Animals are a part of the the natural process, you know, and we can't do without them. Uh, unfortunately, we can't produce more vegetables and fruits and things without having the animals there as well. It's it's quite important that they 
they play that part. Uh, and when you've got much more or conditions that are much less conducive to productivity, you know, those sort of um, equatorial and, and, and tropical regions, it becomes even more important to, to have them as part of that process. What do, what do you think, because you talked about something there, what do you now make of these companies like um, Memphis Meats in the States have got 150 million of funding recently for cell grow meat? What's your view on that? And then what's also view on the kind of quote unquote fake meats, the beyond meat burgers that Bill Gates has invested a chunk of money into as to move us away from animal protein? Um, I, I think it's, it's not a bad thing. You know, not not by any means is it is it a bad thing. I certainly think that people people probably should consume less meat, for sure. Um, and the meat that people sh- consume, they should probably look at consuming more quality uh, meat rather than just whatever's sort of the cheapest. But. Um, in truth, I think that those sorts of things, even if they can get all of the technological challenges out of the way, they're a long way away from being adopted en masse, I think. Maybe in Europe and North America, where the culture is such that adoption would be quite, well, I think, relatively easy. Mm-hmm. But when you start talking about the far east and and africa and you know those those kind of those countries that have an emerging middle class you know this this new wealth that's like emerging in these countries they want meat and they want real meat and it's it's part of the culture and you know they're they're much more associated and much more connected with food than we are in the more developed markets you know and so i i think that there's a real problem with and it's it's certainly been my experience from many conversations that i've had i can't present any data on this by any means but everybody seems to believe that it's definitely more a, a a first world problem you know and a first world solution yeah it doesn't really work everywhere so yeah all, all the power to them and i mean I've, I've i've actually encountered quite a few of them now and there's some really interesting and exciting work going on there mm-hmm. um and i tried my first beyond burger just a couple of weeks ago and it was okay. very very good not quite the same different yes but not bad at all not yeah. bad at all Agreed. I think a nice way to kind of cap this off, and it would be remiss of me not to mention it, but with the coronavirus, COVID-19 at the moment of time, what implications are having on farming that you're seeing? You've got your data which shows things, and what will be the implications, positive or negative, going forwards? Um, there's been a few discussions about it lately. Um, some things have really surprised everybody in the industry i think there was there's a huge shortage of eggs across the country um a lot of places are struggling to get flour in stock somebody put shared an article on linkedin the other day that was saying that it was all to do with people stress baking which is something that i've never never heard of before 
I, th- I think it's uh, more people have got kids at home and they're looking for things to do and they're baking. Yeah. And it takes time that, and rewarding and all that stuff. That's it. I, I think that... I think that it is certainly highlighting the... the fragile nature of the supply chain. You know, everybody was panic buying toilet roll. You know, you don't know, you don't know how desperate you are until you run out of toilet roll and you can't find any anywhere. You know, (laughs) it's, it's one of those, it's one of those things. I think people, people take for granted just what it takes to produce a lot of the stuff that we eat. Um, And we've become very used to having it easy. Uh, a, a, a figure that I can throw out is the fact that now we spend something like, I think it's something about six or 7% of our monthly household income on food now mm-hmm. uh, as an average. Whereas 30 odd years ago, it was something like 35%. Yeah. So we're consuming an awful lot more but it's we're paying so much less for it. Um, the is that way that we, pressure and consortium buying is it is that being the killer? It it is. It's it's not necessarily a killer. I mean, farming is so much more productive now. Right. But the problem that we've had that we have is that the meth how we've gotten to that level of productivity wasn't really sustainable. And so now we're far more dependent upon chemicals and, and that sort of intensive, uh, <laughs> intensive system of, of agriculture, even though it's within an arable setting. Um, there is now something of a renaissance in the UK for almost taking a step back to how farming was back in the even the sort of pre-war period, um, there's a, a sort of a return to people practicing mixed farming, which has, you know, pretty much disappeared entirely back in the 80s and 90s. Um, and lots of people are looking at regenerative practices. So rather than things like plowing, which is great for, you know, preparing seed beds and making sure that you're, you know what seed you drill is going to be the most productive yeah but it takes so much out of the soil it contributes to soil erosion and and flooding and all those sorts of things there's people now are are moving to what they call min till or which is essentially plowing as little as possible or some farms even go all the way to no till where they don't plow at all and they just drill seed directly into the ground okay people are looking at intercropping and much more diverse crop cycles and things like that. There are so many things that farmers are now trying to do to grow food in a much more environmentally conscious way, a much more sustainable way. But the problem with that is it is less productive and it does make it, in most cases, more expensive to produce. Yeah. and as much as consumers say that they like organic and they like free range and they like, you know, all that good stuff, all the data that 
that is there says that actually most of them are purely driven by price. Yeah. I had a similar conversation or thought process with, say, you know, what's happened with Weatherspoons is a great example where, you know, everyone's like, oh, that, you know, he's not been paying his staff and he's been horrible to them. And like, oh, once this is over, like, we're going to boycott it. Well, my argument is, well, the the price of a pint is dictating people will go there because that's what they can afford. And people are very price sensitive. So I see that in a number of ways. Yeah, it is. If you look at it, it's the same in almost every sector you know i mean i'm, I'm sure uh, i had a, a conversation with a friend of mine once about something you might be more familiar with like uh, he was buying an engagement ring yeah and his wife wanted just the biggest diamond that they could get yeah. um and so they ended up with this diamond and he said it, it it's not he said it almost doesn't even look like a diamond they just went you know, size over, over kind of quality. It was, it was size over over quality, and I went I went the other way when when I I, I um, proposed to my wife. I, I went for for quality over yeah. the the sort of sheer size of it. That's what I did also. And it, it's it's the same sort of discussion. You know, people want as much as they can for as little as possible, and one of two things has got to change. You've either got to change the quality of the product or you've got to change how that product was produced you know you've got to change you obviously it doesn't quite work with diamonds but you know for for many other processes it's it's the same you know they're they're cutting costs somewhere to meet yeah. that demand um the supermarkets run very low margins on that sort of stuff um and it's purely about the volume that they can sell and that's forced farmers to go in the same direction you know, farms are getting bigger and bigger and the smaller farms are disappearing um, and everything is becoming much more industrialized. So hopefully this this kind of this new wave of sort of thinking within the industry now is going to take people back to um, a much more, a much more sort of nuanced, much more delicate way of, of producing food. But one of the big challenges is trying to get the consumers then engaged with that and get them understanding of that. Yeah. I think that's a brilliant place to, uh, to leave it. Um, and I'm sure at some other point, I'd love to talk to you about some of the projects you've got ongoing, which seem very, very interesting as well. And, and Always here. yeah, I wish you all the best with the, the work you're doing over in, in, in the kind of emerging economies in Africa, et cetera, is, is phenomenal. And also obviously your UK operations as well. Um, thank you so much for your time. And uh, really appreciate it and uh, look forward to being to you again. Yeah, you too, Charles. Thank you very much. Bye, everyone.